uh, to the Holy Land. And uh, people have asked, was it amazing? And the answer is yes, yes. Uh, I have so many thoughts about it. But the one thing I just want to share, and, I, I, and I'm not, I don't think I've got to get, think about it a little more before I really share the whole thing. But one thing I want to share this morning is the Holy Land, it, it's interesting. You know, we believe God is everywhere, but we also believe God chose to come to a specific place. And when you go to the Holy Land, even today, and there'll be an opportunity, we're, as a church family, we're planning a trip for the Holy Land next year. The Holy Land is what the Irish mystics call a thin place, or a thin space. It's a place where it appears that the line between heaven and earth is blurred, where, where God comes real and close to us. The scriptures also tell us about these kind of thin places, these times where the veil is pulled back between heaven and earth. And one of them was in the passage that uh, the other Sean, our, I, our scout, I was excited. We were 50% Sean's on the platform today. Uh, read for us this morning from the book of Exodus. And the second is our scripture reading from the gospel, from Luke's gospel, the ninth chapter. And so we're going to turn to Luke 9, beginning at the 28th verse, and I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. Now about eight days after these sayings, Peter took with him, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As you're seated, let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you showed your glory on a mountaintop. And your glory comes and abides with us even here in this time and place. And so open our hearts and minds that we might see your glory today. And Lord, come and speak to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. For if your Holy Spirit speaks, Lord, nothing else matters. But if your Holy Spirit does not speak, Lord, nothing else matters. And so speak to us, Lord, we pray, for we, your children, are listening. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord. For you are our strength, and through Christ, you are our mighty Redeemer. Amen. When we read the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're largely divided into two parts. The early life and ministry of Jesus, many of the teachings and healings and miracles that take place in the region around the Sea of Galilee, 
And then the later part as Jesus goes to Jerusalem and faces crucifixion and death. In Luke's gospel, this ninth chapter that we've just read is seen by many as kind of the hinge point, the turning point, the middle point of this gospel. In this moment, as we have built up in the first eight chapters, we start to see face to face who Jesus really is. Earlier in the chapter, uh, in fact, our, our reading kind of hints after these sayings, Jesus has been asking his disciples, who do the crowd say that I am? And then he asks, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And so here they climb the mountain, and after that wild and even reckless declaration that Peter made, they start to see what it's all about. Luke summarizes it this way. They saw his glory. Now what do you think about when you think about glory? What do you think about? Do you think about power or wealth or fame? What does glory mean to you? In the Bible, the Bible has a pretty big picture of what glory looks like. We see it in a very visual way. In Exodus, they say the glory of the Lord was seen upon the mountain. It looked like a cloud and then like fire had broken out on top of the mountain. You can see why Moses was the only one crazy enough to go up there, right? Who climbs a burning mountain anyway? And then, here in Luke chapter 9, this story of these three disciples following Jesus up this mountain, and there it says, they saw his glory. They say his face changed in appearance. He was white, almost white as lightning. His clothes glistened, and they were terrified. You see, terror is the biblical response to seeing God's glory. You're like, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Let's be honest, right? Uh, Because when we see God, these stories like this remind us that God is not a bigger version of us. I think some of us, especially those of us who have followed God, who have believed in God and have followed Jesus for a long time, have unintentionally made God very small. That God is the projection of our desires, of our wishes. God is us, just bigger and more powerful. Stories like this remind us that God is not quite like that. That God is not just a bigger, more powerful version of a human being. You see, it was, it was a famous skeptic once said, God made humankind in his image and then humankind returned the favor. Do you do that? I know I do that. I find that it's convenient that my desires in life also turn out to be God's desires. But when you read the Bible, you find, well, that's not exactly how it works. 
In fact, you know, we say, hey, we want to see God. We want to see the glory of God. But the Bible teaches that God tells the people in the Bible that that's, that's a scary thing. And Moses, in the book of Exodus, tells God, I want to see you. And he says, uh, well, let me give you a paraphrase that I had a professor once tell me. God tells him, you can't see me because if you do, I'll fry you like a French fry. You'll remember that today, I know. I remembered it three years later, that to see God, to see God's amazing holiness, it's so foreign to us as sinful humans that we will die. And yet, we have a God who is insistent that he will not remain hidden from us. You see, God's glory is opened for us to see. Moses, he he said, Moses, you can't see my face, but I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and you can turn and see the glory as it passes by. And then for Peter, James, and John, they were able to see just a glimpse as they pull the veil back. The psalmist says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But you and I are invited to pull it back. But friends, it may not be what you are expecting. It may not be what you think that that glory is like. Because you see, glory for you and I, you and me, glory you and me, we have different ideas. You see, for us, glory, to experience glory, for us, uh, looks like a big house, a promotion at work, more money, more responsibility, more people to oversee. Glory looks like a vacation house, a two-week cruise, Glory looks like all those things that we, that our culture teaches us, make us validate us and, and show that we are worthwhile and that we are successful and productive people in society. And then we will have glory. But Jesus reminds us that that's not exactly what glory is about. Did you see what happened? So, Jesus is up there. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. I don't know how the writers knew it was Moses and Elijah. Maybe they wore name tags. I don't know. But then they're talking to Jesus. And what they talk about, it says they spoke of his departure. The Greek word used for departure is exodos. You probably caught on that that's also the Greek word for the second book of the Bible, right? Exodus. But when he talks about his departure, he's not talking about the 630 chariot to Jericho. He's talking about his death. What could that possibly have to do with glory? And the answer is, from a Christian perspective, it has everything to do with glory. It has everything to do with it. 
Because what we find there is just as when we pull the veil back and we see God, he's not quite what we expected. Neither is his glory. You see, the glory of God doesn't look like your advancement or my advancement. It looks like the cross. Now see, we've taken the cross, and it's in a lot of places in here. It's very intentional. Uh, Quentin tells me that when they built this, we intentionally built the imagery around the, the cross in here, and so it's on the table, on the pulpit, up there, straight line, and then also I've got them on my stole, and so does Pastor Chris, and it's the symbol of our faith. It's the one thing that holds us together. It's the way by which we are reconciled to God, and yet it is a dangerous and shameful thing. You see, the cross, the crucifixion, was a punishment. And in fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you weren't eligible for crucifixion. It was too shameful for for someone who was considered to be part of the in-group to have to suffer. The Romans were aficionados of torture and death. And crucifixion was their highest achievement for maximum embarrassment. The person hangs, bleeding, dying, naked, exposed for the world to see. I learned in Jerusalem that Jesus was not hanged on a green hill far away. He was hanged right in front of the major road so everyone who walked by could point at him and mock and scorn. And that's where Jesus died. That's what he was talking about in his glory. And for the early Christians, they thought, the early pagans thought Christians were insane. Why? Because they worship this common slave, rebel, criminal from nowhere who was executed on a cross. And the early Christians had the audacity to say that that cross is the means of glory. And boy, I'm just really convicted by this. It doesn't really look like my idea of glory torture and death and all. Maybe, for, maybe that means for God's glory is not about moving up in the world, but moving down. You know, clergy, we should be better at this. I just spent two weeks with a bunch of pastors and other, and other people, but clergy, I was talking with a lot of clergy friends, and you know, if you haven't been around the Methodist Church a long time, every summer there are new appointments. Chris and I are here on kind of a one-year renewable contract every year. And so this time of year comes a time when people are wondering, do I get to stay or do I have to move? And if I have to move, where am I going? Now some of you have been in that world for a, for a few years. Some of you have been married to or you grew up in the parsonage. But Chris, I want to tell you, I don't know any pastor who says, the next time I move, I want to move to a smaller church at a lower salary. Never happens. Now, sometimes it does happen, but nobody wants it to happen. You know, the next church, we're no no better. Don't worry, I'm not sitting here pointing down. This This is a me thing, too. You know, we want our next appointment to be more money, bigger church in a town that has restaurants without drive throughs 
Now, someone said earlier, are you saying that you're leaving? No, I'm not saying that. But my point is, every time this year, and pastors, we, we, we get sucked into that too. Because we live in a world that says we've got to step up. We've we got we to look bigger and better. And what if God's glory isn't about that? What if it's about self-offering? What if God is most glorious when he is not trying to hoard it all to himself, but when he's giving it away? What if God is at his most glorious when he is hanging on a cross fully God and fully human? What if that is the moment of glory, that moment where death is defeated, that moment where sin is atoned for, and that moment where life triumphs? What if that's glory? And it looks a lot like the cross. And so, what does that mean for you and me that means if we're going to follow Jesus, life might look more like the cross than the penthouse. If we're going to follow Jesus, it might mean giving up our will in favor of God's will. And maybe if we do that, if we open ourselves to what God wants, if we open ourselves to God's will and we offer ourselves entirely to him and we say with Paul that I have been crucified with Christ and it's not I but Christ who lives in me. Well maybe, just maybe, then we too will see his glory. Let's pray.